Have you ever messed up so bad that you thought you'd never recover? You can't go back from this one. You can't fix this one. There's no going back from this one. There's no do-over for this one. It's that bad. It's a frightful position to be in if you've ever been there. Today, one of Jesus' apostles, the apostle Peter, is in just that spot. He's going to do something so terrible that grief and shame will literally overwhelm him. But what he learns, and what I hope you learn, is that because of the empty tomb, there is nothing you have done and nothing you can do puts you beyond the mercy of God. God is a God of do-overs. God is a God who takes broken people, sinful people, guilty people, and through His power, the same power that caused Jesus to rise from the grave, He forgives them, changes them, transforms them, employs them. What have you done? Is there forgiveness? Is there power to change? There is. And let's see it. Let's, let's be a fly on the wall through several key scenes in the Apostle Peter's life some 2,000 years ago. Let's see his fall, his faith, his restoration, and his boldness. Those are the four truths I have for you this morning. If you're a visitor with us, our normal habit is to walk through books of the Bible. We believe God's spoken to us through his word, and so we study his word to know what he said. But on special occasions like this, we do something a little bit different. And so today, it's a little bit different, and we're just we're going to be a fly on the wall through Peter's experiences, his fall, his faith, his restoration, his boldness. Would you turn to Matthew 26, verse 30? That's on page 832 in the Blue Bibles in front of you. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, and I'm, you're going to hear me say chapters and verses like chapter 26. That's in bold if you're new to looking at the Bible. And when I say verse 30, that's not in bold. Big bold, th- 26, not big bold, 30. Matthew 26, verse 30. For some context, we're just going to pick up on Thursday night, some 2,000 years ago. On this night, Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples. He predicted his betrayal by Judas. After that, he taught his disciples. He prayed for his disciples. And then he has this exchange with Peter in Matthew 26, verse 30. Then Jesus said to them, 
You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus predicts his death. I will strike the shepherd. That speaks of his crucifixion coming the next day. Jesus predicts the disciples will scatter out of fear. Uh, You will all fall away because of me. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So they're going to scatter. And then Jesus predicts his resurrection. But after I am raised up, I'll go before you into Galilee. And Peter hears these things. And what does Peter say in 33? Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Peter says, no way. (laughs) Even if Even if they all fall away, I won't fall away. I won't deny you. I don't know about these chumps. I wonder how it went for Peter later that night. Jesus disagrees. Peter, before the rooster crows tonight, you'll deny me three times. Peter doubles down. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then, of course, spurred on by his courage, the other disciples all seem to chime in. Yeah, yeah, me me too. I'll, I'll do it. You know, we've seen this kind of response in Peter before. Do you remember what he said whenever Jesus told his disciples that he was going to go to Jerusalem and be crucified, suffer, die and then rise again, Peter actually rebuked him and said, may it never be. And of course, the Lord Jesus had to rebuke Peter. But, but what, what is this exchange? What are we to make of this exchange between the Lord and Peter? What it is, friends, is simple, foolish, overconfidence. I will not, I will never deny you, Lord. He thinks pretty high of himself here. Of course, with the benefit of hindsight, we just, we just shake our heads at how Peter thought about himself, don't we? But we've all thought about ourselves wrongly at some point. Christian, think back to when you, when you didn't yet know Christ. Didn't you think of yourself as basically good? Didn't you think of yourself as, as one God would receive on account of your basic effort to live morally? Looking back now, you, you, you think about what you thought and you shake your head at such foolish thoughts, but yet you had those thoughts. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, please hear me. You see yourself fundamentally inaccurately. The way you understand yourself is is actually as inaccurate as Peter's. Actually, it's actually more inaccurate than Peter's because Peter did know and believe in Jesus. You either think there is no God or if there is a God, he's okay with you. You think there either is no afterlife or surely if there is, you'll be in a relatively good place. 
you think that what is wrong with the world is, is those people, whoever those people are, and not you. This is all wrong thinking. I hope you'll have an experience like Peter is about to that will wake you up to your situation. Well, let's fast forward. The night goes on. Jesus is arrested sometime after midnight. And let's pick up the story in Luke 22, verse 54. Turn to Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke 22, verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Now, Peter appears to be making good on his promise not to forsake him. All of the others, turns out, had forsaken him. But he, along with one other apostle, the apostle John, we know that from another gospel, he and and John had not forsaken him. and, and, And here they are, they're with Jesus in this moment. He's not left so far, so good. But, verse 56, then a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately... While he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Peter's brought to an end of himself here. He was doing so good. (laughs) You ever been there? bravely coming with, yet the moment he's questioned by someone so insignificant as a servant girl, he denies knowing Jesus. He denies knowing him once. He denies knowing him twice. He denies knowing him three times. And what happened to that third denial? Jesus looked through the window and he locked eyes with his servant. That moment, I think everything just came crashing down all at once in an overwhelming flood of grief. He heard the rooster crow and he remembered the words of his master before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And it's happened. Sure as God's word, it's true. It's happened. I wonder what other sayings of the Lord went through his mind at that moment. I wonder if this one went through his mind. Whoever denies me before men, 
Him will I deny before my Father who is in heaven. I wonder if that was going through his head. My goodness, friends, this is heartbreaking. I hope you can feel it in the text. It ends on this sober and appropriate note that he went out and wept bitterly. Here's what one commentator says. Everything he thought he knew about himself, all his self-confidence and belief in his undying loyalty to his master had been shattered and lies in utter ruins. He sees himself as a failure, as a liar, as a traitor. Believer, have you gone through anything like this? The shame of committing some terrible sin the guilt and remorse and pain of sinning against your Savior, the anger at your stupidity, the embarrassment of it, the consequences of it, the darkness of it, the shame of it. Oh, sin is a terrible thing. It's not the end, though. We'll come back to that. An unbeliever, please hear me. This experience of Peter is actually something that you yourself need to experience. The the way that you think about yourself in relation to God needs to actually come unraveled. You need to come to an end of yourself. You need to come to see that your confidence in yourself is as foolish as Peter's. That your, your low estimation of God and his might and his wisdom and his power and that your high estimation of yourself, of yourself, that both of those things are pure folly. You need to see actually that you, you are guilty before a holy and eternal and just and almighty God. That he owes you nothing. It would be just to leave you in your sin and the consequences of your sin, eternal condemnation. Then and only then will the tomb that is empty be sweet to you. Well, the gospel writers leave off with Peter at this point until Sunday morning. What happens between then? Let me just give you the Cliff's Notes version. On Friday, Jesus is crucified. He dies. He is entombed. And guards are posted. Saturday, the tomb is guarded. Sunday morning, early, some ladies go to the tomb. What do they see? The stone has been rolled away. It's empty. An angel appears to them, speaks to them, says, Jesus has risen, just like he said he would. I want you to go and tell the disciples. So they they rush off and they find Peter and John and they tell them and the other disciples and Peter and John rush off to the tomb. I'm going to read for you in Luke 24, 12. You don't have to turn there because then we're going to go to John. But Luke 24, 12 says this. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, 
Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Turn to John chapter 20. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 20, verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Let it be known, John is a better runner than Peter. And stooping in to look, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. All these details are significant. They let us know this wasn't simply a grave robber situation. They wouldn't have folded the clothes nicely, right? They just would have gotten out of dodge. These are significant details. Verse 8, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Now Peter and John, please hear me, Peter and John don't understand everything yet. And that's because the promised Holy Spirit had not yet come. That's coming soon. And so since the Spirit hadn't come... They don't understand everything. They don't understand how all of this fits with what's been promised in the Old Testament throughout all the ages that Jesus, the Christ, would have to come and suffer and die and rise. So they don't see the full picture yet, but one thing they do see, there is no body in that tomb. He knows that Jesus has risen. He didn't know what to make of it all yet, but he knows that Jesus has risen. Now, I want you to turn to the Gospel of John, just the next book, next page over about, and we're going to read in chapter 21. Now, as you turn there, you should know that Jesus actually revealed himself to the disciples, including Peter, several times after he rose But now, something particularly special is about to take place. John 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana of Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, have you caught any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciple came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. 
When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place and fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and he took bread and he gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So many lovely things about this text. Let me just bring out a couple. Isn't it interesting how Peter responds when John says, it's the Lord? (laughs) How does he respond? He doesn't hide out of shame. He doesn't lower himself down such that he can't be seen. He doesn't even remain in the boat to wait as it's brought to shore via natural means. He jumps into the water. He goes to Jesus. He wants to be with Jesus. And we learn a lesson about repentance here. Repentant sinners don't hide from the Lord. Repentant sinners go to the Lord. Repentant sinners don't isolate themselves from God or stop going to church or stop letting God's people have access into their lives. Repentant sinners go toward Jesus and his church, not away. That's right, Reuben. Appreciate your encouragement, buddy. Once on shore... This event is all about the restoration of Peter. All of the little details correspond to his failure so beautifully. He denied the Lord by a fire. The Lord restores him by a fire. He denied the Lord three times. The Lord restores him with three questions. He denied the Lord publicly. The Lord restores him publicly. Let's look at this. The Lord asks and says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? It doesn't seem best to take this as the Lord asking him, do you love me more than your fishing gear or your profession?" It also doesn't seem best to take this as the Lord asking, 
do you love me more than you love these other disciples? It seems best to take this as, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Why would he ask Peter that? Oh, I don't know. Maybe it's because Peter had boasted about his superior allegiance to Jesus just a little bit ago. Though they all fall away, I will never fall away. Peter, you still got that same foolish overconfidence? Peter, you still think much of yourself? Peter's answer reveals not a hint of arrogance or pride. He simply affirms his love for him. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. The Lord asks him twice more, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, much has been made of the different Greek words for love between the first two and the last question. I agree with Don Carson that the difference in the Greek words is not consequential here. The point is he asks him a variation of the same question three different times. Why three times? Because he denied him three times. And so three times he's asked and three times he affirms, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And on the third time he's grieved. He says, Lord, you know everything. And you know that I love you. He, he just bows himself to Jesus' omniscience here. He says, you know everything. And let's get specific to Peter. You know, Lord, that despite my heinous and bitter and horrific failure, you know, Lord, that I love you. Jesus says, feed my sheep. Friends, those may be the sweetest three words in the Bible because they communicate two unbelievable truths. Number one, the Lord has accepted Peter. And number two, the Lord is now going to employ Peter in his service. He is both accepted and recommissioned. He is both forgiven and employed. He has not fouled out of the game with a technical or a red card to be discarded forever. He is with his captain and his savior and he is playing and he will be used. He is forgiven and employed. Unbelievable grace. Grace, grace, God's Grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured. There where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Sin and despair like the sea waves cold threaten the soul with infinite loss. 
Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, wider than snow you may be today. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. Freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see his face. Will you this moment his grace receive? This is grace. He denied his master. Not once. Not twice. Three times. And the Lord Jesus has forgiven, accepted, restored, and employed him. That is marvelous grace. And it's not just forgiving grace. It's transforming grace. Let's take just a moment to look at Peter after the empty tomb and this restoration. I'll just highlight a couple of things for you, and I'll have you turn to Acts here in a moment. In Acts chapter 2, this promised Holy Spirit comes. Peter rises up in holy boldness. He preaches. 3,000 are converted. I would say it would be a good day. Acts 3, a miracle is performed at his hand. A lame beggar is healed. The crowd gathers, including Jewish authorities. He preaches, listen in as I read Acts 3, 12 and following. You can turn there if you like, Acts 3, 12 through following. You don't have to. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts 3, verse 12. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. In other words, when he saw a crowd gathering after this man was healed. Here comes a crowd. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God has raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ should suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Well, I'd say he didn't pull any punches in that little sermon. What do you think? 
How many times did he tell them, you killed the author of life? How do you think they responded? Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander. All the big muckety-mucks are there, and all who are of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or what name do you do this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders... If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, and by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. When they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident among all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Holy Toledo, Ohio. This is a totally different guy. This is like a totally different guy. What has happened? He knows that the tomb is empty and that he is forgiven. He knows that the tomb is empty and he is forgiven. The empty tomb and forgiveness of sin has absolutely transformed this man. He was a coward, and now he's a lion. He backed down before a servant girl. Now he stands up to the high priest himself. This is incredible. And and so let's just go back to the beginning. Is there something you have done that you think there's no recovery from? You're wrong. 
You're just flat wrong. There is forgiveness for every sin through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus lived the life you should have lived, died the death you deserve to die, and rose again. And his promise is that for all who repent and trust in him, they are forgiven. And not only forgiven, but they are changed. They are transformed. The gospel does not just set you on your feet. It empowers you to live a pleasing life to the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel doesn't just free you from the condemnation of your sin. The gospel frees you from the power of your sin. It no longer dominates and rules your life. Example A, Peter. And he's just example A. Because that's what the gospel does to everyone who trusts in him. And so non-Christian, what should you do? You should repent and believe. You should place your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. Do you think you've gone too far? If he's willing to forgive Peter, don't you think he's willing to forgive you? If he's willing to forgive the repentant thief, don't you think he's willing to forgive you? If he's willing to forgive the Apostle Paul who was persecuting and dragging off Christians to their death, don't you think he's willing to forgive you? Look, frankly, your sinfulness is what qualifies you for his forgiveness. He's kind of in the business of only forgiving those who need to be forgiven. So come to him. No matter what you've done, no matter your disregard for him in the past, no matter your blatant immorality, no matter your false profession of faith in the past, no matter anything. Come to Him for forgiveness. Come to Him for change. Come to Him for grace. He will forgive you. He will free you. He will transform you. He will employ you. And believer, believer, remember that this gospel This forgiving and empowering and transforming gospel is yours. Are you wallowing in something you shouldn't be? Are you lying? Are you hiding? Are you avoiding? Are you weeping bitterly like Peter? Brothers and sisters, come afresh to the cross of Jesus Christ for forgiveness and for power. Forgiveness for what you have done and power and grace to change. Sin shall not have dominion over you.
for you are not under law, but under grace. And we know it because the tomb is empty. And you know you're restored because he's spoken the gospel word of promise to you. Whoever believes is not condemned, but has eternal life. Walk in that power until the day he brings you home. Let's pray. Father, we agree with the confession of sin that the tomb calls forth our adoring wonder for it is empty and you are risen. We thank you, Father, that we have died with you and that we have risen with you and that your power is alive within us by the power of the Spirit transforming, emboldening, sanctifying us into the image of your Son. Father, we simply thank you today for the empty tomb and for restoration through Jesus' person and work and by our union with him by faith. In his name we pray. Amen.